between 40 and 60% of all publicly traded companies in the United States were family owned or controlled. We're talking about companies like Ford Motor Company. The list goes on. I don't keep up with those size companies, but it's really pretty staggering how many businesses are family businesses. And so I think we're going to talk today about, so what's the difference between a family business and a non-family business? Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Jonathan Goldhill. Jonathan has spent 30 years coaching family businesses. He would have been the fourth generation in his family's business, which was a New York-based clothing business. But there wasn't a disruptive successor in the third generation. And so the family sold the business to a big conglomerate and he moved from New York to California in his early 20s. He then realized that this was really his life's passion. And he spent the next 30 years coaching almost 500 family businesses, helping many of them, I guess, triple their profitability, triple their revenue, massively increase their valuation, and really work out how to pass that wealth on to the next generation, which is really his passion. And so we speak about the differences and similarities between a family-owned business and one either owned by an entrepreneur or maybe owned by venture capital or private equity. Some things are the same, some things are different. The power dynamics are different. Maybe the time frames are different. Maybe even how you measure success is different. So we work our way through the differences and similarities. And I have great fun talking to Jonathan. He's written a book called The Disruptive Successor. He's got the Disruptive Successor podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're a family business, then his content will be really on the money for you. And if you're not, then actually some of the things that happen in family businesses, I think are problems and challenges that we're just avoiding, difficult conversations that we're just avoiding in a business that isn't a family business, that in a family business, they're harder to avoid. So great conversation. I enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. Hey, it's Jonathan Goldhill, and so glad to be on your show, Dom. And we're going to be talking about family business today and the the differences and the similarities of regular businesses. So you're a specialist in growth coaching? Yeah, a little bit about my background. So actually, I got into coaching back in 2003, and I became the first licensee or franchisee, actually, of a company called The Growth Coach. You couldn't get a better name than The Growth Coach. Unfortunately, wasn't a great franchise system, so I didn't stay with it very long. But that's how long I've been coaching for it. So it's 20 years now that I've been coaching businesses. And 
upon reflection prior to writing my book, I thought, I looked at, you know, who is my ideal client profile? And I started realizing that my best clients, the ones that stayed with me the longest were family businesses. And it was because there was a loyalty in family businesses that is unequaled in, in normal non-family businesses. And, and then I also just looked at my passion in life and my grandfather and his brothers and their father built a very large clothing manufacturing business in the United States that made it into the third generation of family members. But those, that third generation was mostly in-laws and I guess they had the opportunity to sell. And so they sold, but stayed in executive seats. They had lifetime employment in the CEO and CAO positions and ran the, the showroom out of New York city, but they, you know, they basically principally basically sold the business. And so there was always this deep passion for family businesses. And my father, who was an in-law, a son-in-law joined the family business. Unfortunately, he didn't live very long. He died a very young death of a heart attack, but always been a really big fascination with family businesses. You know, families are, you know, like they say, blood is thicker than water and they stay together. And, and, you know, the economic unit in some countries like India is all about the family. So 97% of all businesses in India are reportedly family businesses. And think about that. That's, that's mind blowing. And when you've got the, and you've got the Mikkelstadt in Germany, that sort of multi-generational small business, but global niche players, same thing. Yeah. And you've got family businesses in the United States that you don't even realize are family businesses. They're, they're publicly traded. I mean, the research that was done by UCLA, and this goes back too many years to even cite the, the research or how well it was done, but it showed and pointed to the fact that public companies between 40 and 60% of all publicly traded companies in the United States were family owned or controlled. We're talking about companies like Ford Motor Company. I mean, I, the list goes on. I don't keep up with those size companies, but it's, it's really pretty staggering how many businesses are family businesses. And so I think we're going to talk today about, so what's the d difference between a family business and a non-family business? Yeah. And I, I mean, intrigued though, because as you were talking about your, your family's business, you know, that sort of old saw about three generations, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. And then you said, oh, it's three third generations. And then they sold. Is that the biggest problem you face? Is it, is it the transition from the founder to the next generation? The transition can be very sticky. You know, the baton passing from one generation to the next doesn't happen all that well. If the driver founder leader feels as though nobody else could do it as well as he can or could be she, but generally it's a he, right? So there's this ego that goes along with entrepreneurs and founders and people who have worked really hard and have a difficult time passing the baton to the next generation, thinking that, you know, my son, he just doesn't have that drive. He doesn't have that hunger. I see it a lot. And the problem is, is you're never going to pass the baton or develop the next generation, if you're either enabling them or you don't believe in them and you're not, you haven't encouraged them. And so I find that 
family businesses that focus on the family first and not the business first, that they oftentimes have healthier relationships and the baton passing is a lot easier. Sometimes it's literally picking up the baton that fell on the floor, you know, metaphorically speaking, and the son or sons, sons and daughters, you know, they come up and they, they look at it as this is a responsibility. We have to take over our, our mom or mom and dad. They really couldn't bring this business to what it could have been the potential. And so let's really, let's take care of our parents and let's, let's make this business, you know, let's two to 10 X this business so we can help mom and dad out, help them retire. So it's very different. You know, the, the multi-generational family businesses get very complicated, Dom, when you've got cousins and in-laws, and now you've got to create all sorts of rules of engagement. Literally, you have to come up with a, a family constitution, a, a council, where you're laying out who can join the family. You know, maybe what are the rules? Like maybe they have to go work in industry or at another corporation before they join the family business. Maybe the ascension to the C-level suite requires certain experiences. But, you know, so my family, like I said, went from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Not one of the 14 grandchildren that my grandfather had, and he was just one of three boys, not one of them was entrepreneurial. I'm the closest person to being entrepreneurial in, in my family, maybe one or two others, but you know, they became teachers, they became artists and craftsmen, they became sailors, they renegades, you know, they didn't have that hunger. And it's because of what happens in family business. When, when one generation works really hard to build something and the next generation works hard or hard enough to manage it, but not to really grow it that successfully, the next generation is usually so spoiled that they don't have the hunger or the drive or the discipline to maintain something. If entrepreneurs are the number I have in my head that I must have seen somewhere is about 5%, then it's, you know, to have an entrepreneur three generations running is quite unlikely. You are more likely to you know, if you want to run this business to three, four, five generations to manage it and understand how to bring in skills from outside the family. That if you're, but if you're going to have a family member in charge, then the successor and the predecessor have to have a very close mentoring relationship where the predecessor is really grooming this young adult to become the person who takes over the business and runs the business. And you have to develop that hunger by having disciplines and, you know, a discipline and, or boundaries around, we don't overcompensate these children. We don't spoil them. They, they have to earn their way. We teach them the business. We teach them to be an entrepreneur. I mean, how many entrepreneurs, do you know, that, you know, teach the next generation or teach their successor, whether they're you know, professionally hired, you know, in a multi-generational business, by the time it gets to maybe the third or fourth generation, typically you're hiring a professional CEO who is not part of the family, maybe has some, you know, a minor stock position or phantom stock, but you know, these are big and difficult decisions for families to make. And so we were talking before we were recording about the separation that you think is successful, successful firms 
you said you don't work with people who are dysfunctional families. And you mentioned there that the most successful firms, it's a family first and functional family first. And then you were saying, you were telling me earlier that the best way to do it is to split some discussions, to have a business conversation and a family conversation to be clear about what room we were in. What are the sort of family conversations then? It's that's around this sort of business charter, family business charter? Yeah, so some of it, yeah. But think about it just from a non-family business first, and let's talk about family businesses. Or non-family businesses, managers typically are communicating with managers. And so there might be a manager's room where they're having management level conversations. Then there's a leadership team or maybe an executive or senior leadership team. And those might be two, you know, one room in a partitioned room where they're having separate conversations around how to lead and manage and hold people accountable. That's a different conversation. Now, a third room is the owner's room. And these are the shareholders. These are people who have some sort of vested interest and want to understand the direction the family, the business is going. And then there's the family room. And in the family room, they're talking about family issues. Should Johnny be able to join the business at 21 or should he be required to go out and get some other work experience? What about what's our policy around having the wives or spouses rather, husbands, spouses of family members? Should they be allowed to own businesses? Should there be required prenuptial agreements that preclude them from having an ownership position? Let's talk about, and these all go into this family charter family council book, like, hey, we should just be able to get together for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever holidays you celebrate. Just enjoy the family without conversations around the business. So let's create some boundaries around when we get together at mom and dad's house for dinner, we don't talk shop. We keep it separate. We don't, you know, because we want to develop ourselves as, as, as humans, not as, you know, putting the work first. So we want to have different conversations in those different rooms and keep them separated. So there isn't a bleeding over in the owner's room where we're now talking about family issues or in the leadership room where we're talking about ownership issues. It's interesting. As you were talking about that, the only non-family parallel I could I was thinking of was the, you know, if you've started up a business, maybe you're five years into a fast growth startup, you know, the first sales guy you hired is still there right? And he's still a sales guy. He didn't make sales manager, didn't make sales director, but he has a view on the organization. And I've been in this position before where those people have got my ear, right? So, you know, they, all the hierarchy disappears and they take you down to the pub and they tell you what you're doing wrong and where everybody, where everybody else is not as good as they used to be. But it's, there's value in that. And in a family business, you've got that. If you've got a multi-generational business, you've got people throughout the organization. I suppose you've got a slightly different thing is you've got, you've got Fred on the front line. It's not the same thing because that salesperson is not related to me. They've just been there a long time. So they get respect potentially, but you know, he's not thrown his weight around because his, his granddad's the CEO. Well, you know, here's one of the challenges that I see quite frequently with my clients is you have a next generation or a second generation leader who is ascending to the throne, if you will, or to the CEO position or president, whatever we're calling it. And he or she is having to contend with workers who 
are very talented workers that their mom or dad really leaned on and relied upon, but who don't fit the culture that the new next generation leader is trying to put in place. And this next generation leader is not only trying to do some culture initiatives that are unfamiliar to the predecessor generation, but they're also now layering in the application of technology to track your time or to track job costing or, and this older person didn't do things like this. I mean, you know, literally I used to walk into machine shops here in the San Fernando Valley, which was home to a lot of the aircraft manufacturers back in the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, whatever. And so you would get these older guys that were craftsmen and they knew how to weld or work with metal or, you know, machine tools. The new kids, they didn't understand anything about this old equipment. They knew how to use computerized numerical control, you know, machines and program stuff. And they did, these two didn't speak the same language and they didn't have a healthy respect for one another. So, you know, it's very difficult. You have to make these transitions in, in life and in business, right? Could you imagine not knowing how to use a smartphone and being older, you get left behind. I remember speaking to the CEO of an American subsidiary of a European clothing manufacturer tried to be as opaque as possible. And, and he said, he said the family that owned the business, the, the brothers didn't have computers, that their secretary still printed out their emails. And he wanted to invest several million dollars in a new e-commerce website in the US. And he just said, I can't get them to understand what e-commerce is. They don't even read their own emails on computers. And so you've got, you know, there's a huge gap. And as you were talking, I was thinking about somebody I did a bit of work with a couple of years ago. And, and he was basically that whole culture change thing. He was running this skunk works operation inside the business. And he was trying to make sure that the two bits of the business didn't touch because his dad was in his seventies and wouldn't retire. And he and his dad didn't agree about how the business would be run. So he was trying to build something inside the organization outside the scope of competency of his father and the rest of the business the future, the digital, so that when his dad eventually did retire, they weren't left with this massive hill to climb from a technology perspective, but he was absolutely having to do it round the corner and out of sight and, you know, beg, borrow and steal resources to make it happen. And I said, it must be driving you mad. I mean, this is a bloke in his fifties, right? This must be driving you mad. He goes, it is what it is. He won't be here forever. Right. And so they wait till he's incapacitated, death, disability, something causes now the shift. I have a, a new client coming on board right now who has communicated to me that he goes, I don't want to put any major like culture initiatives or change. I, I don't want to put any new processes because the person I'm taking over from who's like family, cause I I'm the only family member, like individual, he's not going to follow the rules. So if I try and put a new process into place and then the owner doesn't follow the process and this is pretty common, right? The owner doesn't follow the process, doesn't use the technology, doesn't, doesn't participate in the meetings. You know, it's like, do as I say, don't do as I do. Then like that kind of poor leadership uh, where they don't model the way things are to be done, just sabotages everything. So he's just like, I just want to wait till a year and a half till he sunsets out and I have full leadership control to be able to put any of these 
like scaling up type processes and, you know, and implement things that you would normally implement in the business because they're going to fail. That's not how I want to get started with you. Is that sort of lack of compliance the biggest challenge you have? Or are you always working for the CEO? Or are you, when you say second generation, are you working for the second generation up and coming CEO? I'm always working for the CEO or the president owner, but oftentimes it's a younger person and I will communicate. I'll, I'll do some individual coaching of the older person. And I'm usually doing more what I call kind of life coaching with them. You know, I'm trying to help them to see that there's another world out there outside of their business and help them to discover or find out like, like, what is it? If you could you know, do whatever you wanted to, if you had more free time, if you had more money, you know, these types of life coaching questions, what would you do? You know, would you travel more? Would you... You know, you know, what is it that you would do? And I try and get them to move and transition out of the business so they're being pulled towards other interests and not feel like they're being pushed out, right? Being pushed out is not a good feeling. And if you feel like you're being pushed out, you'll grasp for control and you'll sabotage the CEO or, or child's you know, plans. So it's communicating in between the two. And then, I mean, I had one client, I still work with them eight years now. And I'd say every year or two, the question is, so like, so what do I do with my dad now? You know, how do we get him to like, how do we compensate him? How do we, how do we mar move him into a different position? And to some degree, we were marginalizing his role in the company and, you know, keeping him well employed and making sure he was happy, but not holding him accountable not having him fill out a scorecard of, okay, how many sales calls did you make? Okay. You know, did you meet your business development objectives? You know, I said, just make him like the ombudsman, you know, where he goes around and he's, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies and communicate, like getting to know people in the community and, you know, bringing his knowledge and expertise, but not having him teach people how we do things in terms of processes, but teaching them the technical side which is oftentimes what's lost in translation, is the technical understanding, the, the industry. I was thinking about a client of mine, Sapphire Balconies, where that was the role that the father took to really well because it was his deep technical knowledge. And, you know, the sales guys would love him on a pitch because he just, you know, the client would say this, 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 and this. And like in his head, he could design the whole thing, price the whole thing, knew exactly what it was all going to cost without going back and doing anything on computer because he just had years and years and years of knowledge at his fingertips. Yep, exactly. And so what do you think were his biggest concerns in the transition? It, I'm imagining, you'll, I'll let you answer, but I'm imagining that he wanted to make sure that he was, that they, that technical ability was somehow being fostered. There's that, but there was also, I think he had built the business to the scale it was at, being very prudent. And his son had a more ambitious growth agenda. And so there was some tension about that. But to continue to grow, they they really needed to go international. So they'd gone to, went to New Zealand and they went to America because otherwise they were, or Canada, because they were, the total addressable market in the UK wasn't big enough. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that is a, oftentimes another tension that goes on between the predecessor and the successor. It, 
in a family business, and I'm going to just say out loud as I'm thinking about it, in a non-family business as well, right? So a professionally hired CEO has got the same challenge, which is they're trying to drive a growth initiative. And I usually use the phrase, the younger person is willing to bet the farm. And because most family businesses were probably agrarian, you know, businesses that they had a farm, it took care of the family and, and, and beyond. And now the next generation wants to bring technology and tools and and processes that the older generation like why wouldn't understand why you would need that if you just you know you can manage it what you see it's of a scale it's manageable so that tension of investing money and risking company assets a younger person who's in their 20s or 30s has a long life ahead of them to be able to make mistakes and make it back up a, a 60 year old or 70 year old like there isn't a lot of runway left for them to, you know, lose and then make it back up. They have to preserve what they have. So that tension between preservation and growth and the challenge between the two, they have to meet in between and find a, a happy medium. Well, and overlay on that with, as you were saying, as somebody becomes marginalized, the lack of purpose, you know, entrepreneurial individual probably doesn't have, didn't historically have a lot of work-life balance. And then here you are trying to persuade them to play more golf. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about a, a client that I work with at the moment that has, I suppose, deliberately decided that this is going to be a multi-generational business. Yeah. And so his wife is in the business. There's two families that are the main shareholders. And now both husband and wives are in the business. All the children are too young to be involved, but they, they are taking different length decisions. So, you know, if I think about other CEOs I work with, if, if you're the tenured CEO, I think typically people are on sort of a five-year cycle, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm here for five years. What does this look like? I'm going to make some decisions. Certainly if you're PE backed, you're in that investment exit five-year phase. But, you know, these guys are now taking longer term decisions. And I guess that's, and I, if I think about some of the other, you know, I've worked with one of the UK's largest family firms and they regularly say this isn't about profit first. Now that's not to say they're not about making money because they're definitely about making money, but, but it's not quarter over quarter. It's year over year or two or three years over two or three years. It's, there's a different, there's a different timeline. I agree hundred percent. I think the time horizon is, is very different and they're not trying to maximize shareholder value as we we're taught in, or uh, as I was taught in business school 30 years ago. I mean, that's not the primary driver. They're trying to maximize something that's for the family, the value of the family and the family value. As you were talking, I think before we got onto the recording, the family could be the community at large. And, you know, I, I mean, I remember the question I used to ask my mother. So like who all works in the family business, mom? Like, how many family members? And she goes, she goes, I, I don't really know how many family members work in the family members, but like, let's just talk about family members who are not in the family business because the family business employs everyone in the family. So, and that was the mindset. It was like, we're going to bring everyone in the family is going to have a place. And I, I remember when my father and my uncle, both again, they, these were both son-in-laws. They were not sons of the Cohen's that were the, that was the family and they came into the business, Walter and Jerry, and they, there was no real place for them. So what they, I guess the decision makers decided, Hey, we'll come out with a new line of clothing. It'll be a knocked off line. It'll have 
no expenses, no cost of goods associated with it. So we'll give them a, you know, a really good head start and, and we'll name it after Walter and Jerry. We'll call it Walger Clothes. And what well, terrible name, terrible name, horrible. But, you know, they weren't in the naming business because everything they had been doing up until then was private label manufacturing. So, so you had the department stores, they were coming out with a brand label that was given to them by the department store. And they were the largest private label men's suit manufacturing. And here they came out with their own line. They just, they create a place for these kids. How do family firms that you work with handle performance? How do they handle performance? Yeah. So, you know, we've decided that Walter and Jerry are in the business, right? And we've a stated aim that the business is for employing the family. Like how crap do they have to be? Or do we just find it, just, do we keep them in the business forever? No, I remember there was a, I, I just remember this from the stories in that situation with Walter and Jerry, there was a lot of pressure put on these young adults to perform. They had to live up to the standard, the Cohen standard, which was a high standard. And they didn't want to disappoint their father-in-law, you know, disappointing their father-in-law, like would suggest that they weren't taking care of their, of the daughters. And that would be a really big problem. And so in clients' businesses that I've worked with over the last 10 years, sons or daughters who didn't perform, we figured out a place for them to go to where they either could perform or we help transition them out of the business. Because ultimately, I mean, we're living in a time when everyone wants to be, I think, somewhat self-actualized. If you don't want to be self-actualized and you're really a poor performer, let's say you're a C player and you're just hanging around because you're getting the spoils of the, you know, the, the money that comes in from the business and they're paying you. You're going to kill that child by enabling them. And a parent recognizes that I need to do something with my child. And so sometimes they have to just fire them or ease them out. Poor performance can't be tolerated, especially if you're going to work with a growth coach like myself. Like I will snuff that out really fast and I will point it out to them and say, you know, this, this, the elephant in the room that we need to deal with. It's just, it's, it's imperative. You can't, I mean, you know it because you, you teach it all the time. It's part of the literature, right? A C player pulls the whole team down, especially if they're a family member and they're, you know, they're an, or an owner. It's a terrible example. I would think as a family member, low down in the organization, to that sort of, it's toxic to tolerate poor performance. I mean, anywhere in the business, but particularly family, that must be, leave people shaking their heads. You're only as strong as your weakest player. We've all heard that phrase, but, you know, think about it in a family business. I'm, I mean, I can think about a, a client that I'm working with, just starting to work with right now that has a family member who is not capable of running the business. And I'm going to have to find out how good or not good a performer or contributor this person is. Because if you accept mediocrity from your family members, then what will you expect from non-family members? And the business is only going to rise to the level of the leadership that you allow. If you don't train leaders to lead and be more, a better leader than you were, then you, you put a lid on the growth of the business. And you, you said that you, you're coaching multiple generations. In the 
clients you work with are most of the executive team that you're are they mostly family i think you said to me you coach where people are open to it you're coaching the entire executive team right but they're not mostly fa- they they might have multiple family members on the executive team and in some cases they're the executive team is just the entire family so i have a, a family of five five members and they're the executive team so but that's not always the case oftentimes it's it's a mix or a blend and so are you doing, it just, it just feels like that might be family therapy on one hand. And on the other hand, I remember, I remember being at a conference and Jack Welch was the speaker and the lady in the audience put her hand up and she said, I'm so-and-so, so-and-so, it's a family run business. And Jack Welch said, are you a member of the family? She said, no. He said, thank you very much. Next question. And it was just that, you know, the blood is thicker than water. And so whatever her problem was, they're never going to change it because she's not family. It's true. And so... Are you often involved in that? Is there a challenge there where you've got a family on family challenge in, in some businesses? And then is there often in other businesses conflict between family and non-family? I haven't encountered that yet, but I could certainly imagine the time when there will be. Uh, I am in conversations with a potential client right now where it's a non-family member, but I don't think there's any family members that this individual is vying for the leadership spot with. But yeah, this would be a, you know, this is a common problem. And this is why the family business doesn't make it to the next generation sometimes. And that the parents or whoever is running the business at that point have to decide we're better off just selling and giving, gifting our kids the money because they're going to get it anyway. And they're not capable of running this business. So we ought to sell it to an outside party. And these are the typical decisions that family members have to deal with. They have to have a separate conversation in the family room from the owner's room or shareholder's room where they make, where they, maybe the shareholder's room is where they make the decision. And in the family room where they explain the context and why they made the decision. And a couple of years ago, you wrote a book about your experience and these particular challenges, Disruptive Successor. What, what are some of the core tenets of the book then that we haven't yet spoken about? Well, so we haven't really talked much about the fact that the, the book is designed as a fairly simple playbook that, and I, I introduce what I call the seven piece framework or playbook and that all businesses need to address these seven Ps. They, and these are not too different from other standard businesses. And so one is, is like, what's our purpose? And one, another is what's our plan? And a third one that's not often talked about scaling up or entrepreneurial operating type systems is our products or services. What changes do we need to make to our products or services to, to modernize them? I mean, it's, it's simple enough to understand that we need to put technology and tools and applications in where the business probably wasn't run like that. But, you know, and then the questions that are dealt with in normal businesses, I mean, do we enter new markets? Do we come out with new products or services? You know, how do we enter those new markets? And then there's the, the people, the priorities, the processes, the performance metrics, which are all standard part of any type of operating system. But I think what's a little different in my book is I introduce some communication tools that need to happen to have difficult conversations, to keep or to install a health, healthy team dynamics. 
And communication is where we run into problems in family businesses. We run into communication difficulties in every business, but in families, I can see how you've just got this extra level of tension. And so you have to separate out like, yeah, I'm not really that keen of your wife. I mean, and you can't say it like that, but you have to understand the, you know, where they're coming from. And we do this again in regular business. We feel like, hmm, this employee is like, they've got good, they've got a good work ethic, but it feels as though they're too involved with their family or, you know, they have issues at home with childcare. And so, and yeah, they probably should put that first, but they need to manage that. And so it's a different conversation with a family member around that type of topic. Because there's a different power dynamic, I guess. Yes, exactly. Okay. And you've got a podcast, the same name. I do. So I decided that I thought it would be interesting to amplify the brand Disruptive Successor and the book by bringing on experts in the family business space to talk about family dynamics and then bring on family business owners um, and leaders to talk about the challenges that they have gone through or that they're going through. And then family businesses have some needs that are similar to regular businesses, but are more commonly discussed, you know, estate planning, wealth management, putting together buy-sell agreements, talking about an ESOP. You know, these are topics that I don't think are commonly addressed in other, other business podcasts. So I thought, let's put on something that's really focused on family issues that family business owners will appreciate. Fab. Jonathan, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? Everything. So, you know, there's a certain wisdom, Dom, that comes along with doing this for 30 plus years. And that's a really difficult question to answer, to be quite frank. You know, I think that I would have to say that when I first got into consulting, I had no idea that there was something called coaching. And when I made the transition into coaching, I didn't really understand what coaching was, was having a playbook, like an operating system or playbook that you could install in any business and would add a significant value to that business by having this playbook. And so what I know now is that the companies, and maybe some of them are small and some of them are even larger, that don't have an operating system, a, a playbook in place a common set of language, a common scorecard, visibility to these things that, you know, all the coaching I did in my early years had no reference or no notion that there was a common playbook that could be brought to every business. And just like a basketball coach in college has the same playbook that he teaches his, you know, freshmen and sophomore and juniors and that they learn to run um, and that makes them successful. It's a very different role than the role of a consultant who comes in with no conceived notion that there is even a playbook that even exists or would work and has to figure out what the problems are. And you start to recognize that businesses aren't that unique. They all have accountability issues or they many of them have accountability issues and other types of organizational dynamic issues that if you have a good playbook, it can really help them get where they want to go much faster. Fab. Thank you for that. Other than picking up a copy of Disruptive Successor, are there any other books that you think or that you've really enjoyed reading or that you think family businesses or 
businesses more broadly should read? Yeah. So, you know, one of my favorite books was actually an autobiography and it was Jack Welch and Susie Welch. And he wrote a book, it was his first book. It was called Jack Straight from the Gut. And I loved following his progression and how he outlined the things that he learned and how he created a world-class management and leadership training program, how he used the ABC grid to you know, figure out productivity of, of people and fit with the culture. I think that there's quite a few tools, management, leadership development tools that I use today that I would attribute to him. And, and then all my clients' favorite books are usually Patrick Lencioni books because they're easy to read and digest and speak to the dysfunctions in a business, speak to, you know, what a good meeting rhythm and, and, you know, what should be included in those meeting conversations. And so those are really important. I, I, those would be probably two standard types of books that I would recommend. That's cool. I think Lencio, is it Working Genius? Is that his 12th book? I think it is now. Yeah, I think so. And I haven't read it yet, but, but I studied the model a bit and, you know, models are good, but can be constraining, I think also. Right. So I'm a big fan of the quote by Buckminster Fuller was, you know, give a person a tool, the use of which will, will change their thinking and then like change their behavior. And I think that's the value of models and tools, but they also sometimes can be very confining because not everyone fits into the model or the tool. Jonathan, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today about the trials and tribulations of running a family firm and how you've been able to help your clients drive success. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.